tonight we are uh, just on the final part of our resurrection series uh, titled New Life. Um, next week, uh, for five weeks, uh, we're going to finish the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, looking at chapter 16. Uh, our mini-series will be titled The Church is a Loving Family. Um, and as we uh, close this focus tonight on the resurrection, you might remember over the last few weeks we've been particularly thinking about this, this idea of resurrection as this future reality, this promised hope that we have. Uh, and tonight we're doing something slightly different. We're looking at what it means for us to live our lives today uh, in light of this promised hope that lies before us, but we're doing so in terms of the practical reality uh, for us uh, day after day. So how should we live today in light of what God has planned for us in the future? Uh, and to do that, we're going to focus on one verse. So chapter 15, verse 58, I'm reading from, from the CSB. Christian Standard Bible. So Paul writes these words uh, to the church in Corinth. And these are words for us today, uh, tonight. So let's have a look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. Uh, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let me read that again. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray. So, Father, we, we recognise tonight that, that you are God and we aren't. And, Lord, we, we come with open and humble and repentant hearts, and we ask that you would fill us. You would fill us to overflowing so that we have insight and understanding as to what your word says that we would take what your word says and apply it, and that we would disappear, that you would become our focus, and this would all be for your glory. So would you take your word and use it for your purpose as we go into this week? In your name, amen. So, steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. I wonder, would that describe your life? Would that describe your life? Um must be honest, I think it's very difficult for us to, to make a self-assessment of our own life and say that we're steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in the Lord's work. It's hard for us to, to identify that in, in our own lives. But I wonder if other people, those who are closest to your life, I wonder if they would look at your life and say, he or she is someone who is steadfast, he or she is someone who is immovable, he or she is someone who is always excelling in the Lord's work. Uh, just as a side note, and this is something we're going to touch on in a wee moment, um, to always excel in the Lord's work does not mean that ministry will not be difficult. Things will always work out as planned. Mistakes will never be made. That's not what, what Paul means here. And we know from Paul's example, we see it in the book of Acts, we see what he writes in the New Testament. We recognise from Paul in his life that ministry was difficult. Things didn't always work out as planned for Paul. And believe it or not, Paul did actually make mistakes. He was a fallen man, and he even described himself as the worst of sinners. But I wonder tonight, if you were to antonymize, antonymize these three words, and I don't even know if that's a word, but I've made it up. To put it another way, if you were to turn these words into their exact opposite definition, would there be more affinity with the biblical words that Paul uses, or their antonym equivalents? So instead of steadfast, 
we use the word hesitant. And instead of immovable, we use the word fickle. Um, and we also replace the phrase always excelling in the Lord's work with always falling short in the Lord's work. So the two ends of the spectrum this morning, this morning, tonight, uh, steadfast, immovable, <clears throat> always excelling in the Lord's work. And the other side of that is hesitant, fickle, always falling short in the Lord's work. So two extremes. <clears throat> I think we would be confident in saying tonight, we're not all one or the other, but we can be certain that we are either more steadfast than hesitant or more hesitant than steadfast. Uh, we are more immovable and fickle or more fickle than immovable. Uh, or we are more excelling in the Lord's work than falling short in the Lord's work or more falling short in the Lord's work than excelling. And this kind of assessment, if we were just to, to do that, of our own lives, assess what's really going on. This kind of assessment, it shouldn't lead to, to pride, thinking that we're doing really well here, pat ourselves on the back. But it shouldn't also lead to despair if we do feel we are falling short in these areas. This kind of assessment, however well or badly we think we're doing in Christian life, should bring us to a place where we run ever more swiftly to Jesus. So we... We look at what's going on in our lives, whether we feel we're doing well or we're not doing well, and we recognise we need to run to Christ. Whatever scenario, intentionality in your Christian walk can only ever come from intimacy with Christ. Let me say that again. Intentionality in your Christian walk can only ever come from intimacy with Christ. The more rooted you are in him, the more fruitful you will be. And the more you live that kind of way, the more you will not focus on yourself, and think about it's about you. So yes, we do make these assessments, but we don't end there. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. You will say, as Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, verse ten, Paul says it will be up on the screen for us. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And we just sang, yet not I, yet not I. Christ in us, the grace of God that was with me. So yes, it's good to assess where are we in this spectrum, but no, we don't stop there. We focus our eyes, we fix our eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And I wonder tonight, do you see what Paul is doing here? Um, within this verse, uh, Paul wasn't laboring in ministry thinking about himself. He says, no, not I. He attributed all of his fruitfulness to the grace of God at work in his life. And so should we. Any evidence of God's grace, any evidence of, of good fruit in our lives, none of us can take credit for it. It's God. We don't serve the Lord thinking it's about ourselves. In any scenario, none of us should ever at any point think that something good that's within our lives is to do with us. It's all God. We serve the Lord focusing on this reality that it's in Christ, it's through Christ, and it's for Christ. We get into this habit of decrease as he does the work of increase through our lives and in our ministry. In other words, we become more and more like John the Baptist's prayer. We decrease, he increases. Thursday during our missional community, um, Salah came uh, with a couple of gifts for James. He came with this medal uh, and a trophy 
<clears throat> the medal was from the half marathon he ran a few weeks ago. Uh, some of you know this is not just some kind of rubbish medal. It's something you get at a cracker or a cereal box, Cocoa Pops. Um, this is a, a proper medal. It's an actual medal. Um, and the trophy that Salah gave James, it was like a wee mini Oscar. Um, it said winner on the front. And I think it was just something that Salah bought for James. Now, Salah did all the work. So he ran the race. He received the medal. He found the trophy. He bought the trophy. And he came to the house and he gave these things to James. And it was James who spent the entire missional community strutting about with this medal, holding on to this trophy, thinking that he'd achieved something. Now, the analogy breaks down because he's just a wee boy and it's okay for wee boys to do that. But imagine Salah brought me a medal or bought a trophy for you uh, and he turned up to your house and he gave them to you and you spent the entire day walking about your house or walking down the street with this medal carrying this trophy saying I ran this half marathon, I earned this trophy. I would hope that someone would sit you down and say a wee word, uh, stop embarrassing yourself, you've not done anything at all, it was all someone else, this person ran that race. This person bought that trophy. It was all a gift to you. You need to be giving that, that person the credit. And just let me say tonight, this is what it's like for you and I. When we receive what God has so generously given to us, all because of what God has achieved for us, and we start to think it's something to do with us. We start to actually think that we in some way deserved it because of something within us. To put it really bluntly tonight, you're not that special. I'm looking at all of you here. I'm not looking at one person in particular. None of us are that special. We're all ordinary people. God didn't choose you because you have spiritual credentials. God chose you because in his grace and in his mercy, God chose you. And that's it. Full stop. Today you carry a medal, a trophy in your life, and your job is to give credit to the one who ran that race and who paid that price for you. And it wasn't you, it was Jesus. He achieved that for you by dying on a cross for your sins, by rising from the dead. His life can now be your life. All you do is receive the gift and spend your entire life fixing your eyes on him and giving him all the glory, all the credit, recognising it's all a gift. It's nothing to do with you. This grace that we're talking about tonight, it's more than justification of what God has done for us. This grace is also sanctification, what God is doing in us day after day after day. So tonight as we think about the fact that we can be steadfast and movable and always excelling in the Lord's work, understand it can only ever be from that foundation of God's generous work, both for us being justified and also in us being sanctified. We're justified and sanctified. God has done the work for us. God is doing the work within us. And Paul doesn't just teach about God's grace. He actually examples something of God's grace to these Corinthian brothers and sisters. And we know this because he begins this verse in this way. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. <clears throat> now, Paul is actually finishing this letter as he started. So have a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 4 to 5. It doesn't say the exact same words, but... The heart of what Paul is saying is the same. So Paul says in this verse, of these verses, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. 
that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, when we look at the totality of this letter, when you look at just this, this starting point, Paul says, I thank God for you. And when, when you look at the end, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, there's love. But in the middle, there's a whole chunk of mess. I mean, the Corinthians were messed up with a capital M. And Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that despite the fact that they were messed up in all these different ways, he still loved them. He still cared for them. So despite the fact that they are dividing over who their favourite teacher was, chapters 1 to 4, despite the fact that they are tolerating incest, chapter 5, despite the fact that they are bringing lawsuits against each other, chapter 6, despite the fact that they were excusing sexual immorality, chapter 6 again, despite the fact that they were confused about the role of marriage and singleness, chapter 7, despite the fact that they were eating food offered to idols and causing others in the church to stumble, chapter 8, despite the fact that they were confusing gender roles through the misuse of head coverings, chapter 11, despite the fact that they were abusing the Lord's Supper, chapter 12, despite the fact that they were misusing and abusing the spiritual gifts, chapter 12, again, and despite the fact that some of them were denying the resurrection, what it is we read about in chapter 15, Paul still, in spite of all of that, Paul still says, my dear brothers and sisters. So just take a, a hold of that. Grace at the beginning, a whole host of different problems and messes and doctrinal inaccuracies, and then he says at the end, my dear brothers and sisters, in this cancel culture that we live in, how refreshing it is to read those kind of words. If it wasn't for God's word and the example of Paul here to the church in Corinth, I don't think many of us would continue to put up with the Corinthian church, if we're honest. And even with the knowledge of what we read in Corinth and how it is Paul responds, some of us deep down within our hearts would still want to cancel the Corinthians because of our doctrine and their life. But what we find from the example of Paul is that Christian maturity is rooted in unity. <clears throat> and unity is often not the absence of difference. Unity, more often than not, is how we respond lovingly to brothers and sisters in Christ in the presence of difference. And that's so important for us. Let me just say, the Reformed world is very good at doing this. I would call myself Reformed in terms of theological conviction. But we often think functionally, if someone is not reformed, then that someone is not Christian. That someone is not worth engaging with. And in reality, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Even though we would never say that outright, we can often act in a way that ostracizes, that rejects, that cancels those who are not like us. I was at this conference in Latvia, and I've got to admit, there were many people who had different understandings on many areas around the Christian life. We agreed on the essentials, which is so important. What it is that makes us Christian, but we disagreed on other areas, which are still very important. But to be able to sit and chat and listen and share and engage with those from others, even from a, a broadly Baptist gathering, was without question, it was an absolute gift. To be able to speak with people who had different convictions. And me doing that, doesn't dilute my own convictions about the things that we disagree on. Just because I'm able to share a meal and have good conversations and have friendships with people who are different, doesn't dilute what I believe. But it does help me to understand that it's God's kingdom 
and not Mark's kingdom. So what he's doing in Europe, he's doing amongst his diverse bride, also known as the church. So for Paul here, he's saying to the Corinthians, you guys are way off. You're way off on this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue. So let me share the gospel in this area and this area and in this area and in this area. He still wants to be in on the conversation because he still wants to be a good influence within their lives. And let's not lose sight of the fact that we're still family. This is what Paul essentially is saying. Let's not lose sight of the fact that we're still family. In spite of our differences, God is still working in your lives as a church family. And we all know that from our experience of families, that kind of broad definition of families. We all have uncles and aunts and cousins. Not everyone within a family is the same. We're all different. There's folk within the family who we don't get on with. There's challenges, but we still recognise them as family. If anything, you could say that Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, both his first letter and his second letter, are essentially a manual on what it looks like for Christian unity. The truth is that Christians, we've been cancelling each other for a long time, way before cancel culture became a thing. All of which brings disorder to the church and its witness to the world. So Paul examples unity with this reference to them as brothers and sisters. And then he says, be steadfast. Be steadfast. This word, be, this word, be, is the Greek word for prove yourself. So prove yourself in your steadfastness. And not in a way that Paul here is saying, be steadfast as a means of justifying yourself before God. In other words, if you're steadfast, then God will accept you. That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, be steadfast in a way that demonstrates you're giving your wholehearted all to this notion of following Jesus. So in light of all that God has done for you, your worshipful response is one of steadfast, steadfastness to him. So Denison Baptist Church, as Paul says, be steadfast to these Corinthian brothers and sisters. Let me encourage you to give everything of who you are to be steadfast. So that you are someone who is undeniably steadfast. Undeniably. There's not, no doubt in your mind, no doubt in other people's minds that you're someone who's not steadfast. The word steadfast, it's a Greek word, hedrios. Hedrios. And it means firmly seated. Firmly seated. You're all sitting down right now. So it means you're not moving from that seat. It implies a fixed purpose of heart against any temptation to evil. And the example that immediately came to mind when I read that definition uh, was the story of Rosa Parks during the civil rights movement in the States. Some of you might know this story. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was coming back on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And racial segregation was written into the actual law in Alabama, including who it is that would sit where on a bus on any given day. The front of the bus was reserved for white citizens, the back of the bus for black citizens. And on this day, Rosa Parks was sitting in the bus. A white person had no seat because all the white seats, the white seats were taken. The driver told four black people in a row to stand, not just one, but all four. And three stood up. One remained seated. Now, it was all four because... The white person didn't want to sit beside a black person. <coughs> one remained seated, three stood up. That one was Rosa Parks. 
Two police officers were called to the bus. She was arrested. Many recognised this as a moment that began the civil rights movement. And what was Rosa Parks doing but being steadfast? Being steadfast. And she was literally being firmly seated. Literally. Not giving in to this call of evil. The call which demanded that she get off her seat. And for you and I to be steadfast in the Lord, it means we're firmly seated on the word of God. We're firmly seated on the gospel. We're firmly seated on God's love. So greed, envy, lust, hatred, unbelief might come along and tell us to get off that seat, to walk away from the word, the gospel, God's love. And steadfast you will in the power of the Holy Spirit be able to say to the world, the flesh and the devil, jog on, jog on. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here for Jesus. I'm sitting here for Jesus. And it's all for his glory. So when you think of this word steadfast, hold on to that picture. And let me just encourage you with these words from Colossians 1, 22 to 23. Paul says this, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast, there's that word, and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The definition is right there in the passage. So steadfast and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So to be steadfast is to not be shifted away from what you've heard, the hope of the gospel. So I wonder, have you ever experienced those moments where you feel really, really, really tempted to sin? If we're honest tonight, sometimes in those moments it can feel overwhelming. And have you ever understand, have you ever understood those moments in this way? God has given me the opportunity and his strength and the power of his Holy Spirit to be someone who, in this particular moment of temptation, I can be someone who is steadfast. God's given me an opportunity here to be steadfast. Thank God that every moment is a teachable moment and an opportunity to walk closer with God, including those moments when we're tempted to sin. So these difficult moments can turn in a way which makes us grow in our walk with Christ. Let me just encourage you to think that way when you are tempted to sin. And Paul says that we are not just to be steadfast, we're also to be a people who are immovable. Immovable. Now straight away, you might see that these words steadfast, immovable, are very similar. And they are very similar. The Greek word for steadfast, hedrios, and the Greek word for immovable, ametakenetos. That's completely different to what I said this morning, but it's fine. <laughs> They can, in fact, both carry the same meaning. This idea of being firm, or being firmly seated. So why does Paul do this? Why, why, does, why does he say, be steadfast and be immovable, which are essentially the same thing? You could argue that Paul is saying, my dear brothers and sisters, be firm in your faith and be firm in your faith. It's essentially what he's doing here. Why does he not just say it once? Well, if you know anything of the Apostle Paul, you'll know that sometimes he says something twice to make a point. So he reinforces the same idea 
even within the same sentence. So in Philippians 4, 5, <clears throat> Paul writes to this church in Philippi and he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Well-known verse. Rejoice. So important, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. The same command twice, in the same sentence, and he uses the exact same word. Surely the reason why he does this is because Paul sees rejoicing as vital, vital to Christian faith. Hence why he writes it twice. And surely he recognises this idea of the Corinthians being firmly seated in their faith, saying no to all the different temptations that the world, the flesh and the devil might throw at them. Paul recognises this as essential because they lived and breathed in this culture and context that was doing everything possible to take them away from the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And our culture is not much different to the Corinthian culture. So Denison Baptist Church tonight, be firmly seated in your faith. I say it again, be firmly seated in your faith. Paul wants us to recognise that it is not easy to live a Christian life. None of us, I hope none of us ever thought that a Christian life was going to be easy. If we decided to follow the one who lived the life he lived and died the death he died, then it makes sense that life will be difficult for us. Life will be tough. To be who Christ calls us to be, or to be someone who lives in tension with the world. The call therefore is to be someone who is firmly seated. Firmly seated. And the bigger view overall of that is to be someone who is living in the very purpose and plan of God. And surely that will give us peace and joy. Surely. Well, we know it does. When we choose to be firmly seated in his plan and purpose, we will have peace and joy. With that in mind, you can be encouraged and blessed that you will be alive. Capital A, alive for the glory of God. And you can't really replace that reality with anything else. To be alive in Christ, there's nothing else better than that. The author and journalist Malcolm Muggeridge once said this, Never forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. Only dead fish swim with the stream. So to be alive is to be in tension with the world. It's to go against the current. And as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <clears throat> so we often think the promises of God are these nice promises that we put on our fridge or mugs or tea towels. Not many people have this on their tea towel. All who want to live a godly life, promise, will be persecuted. Let me just say, I know that we should ever be a people who are looking for opposition. Um, if we are finding it easy, then there's a very good chance we're not living correctly. God's word makes many promises, including this promise of persecution. So Paul's call here is to be steadfast and immovable. In other words, <clears throat> to be firm in your faith and to be firm in your faith. And then Paul moves on to speak about this idea of, of always excelling in the Lord's work. So be steadfast, be immovable, and always excel in the Lord's work. And some translations would say always abounding in the Lord's work. And it's this Greek word, perusesai. Colossians 2.7, Paul uses the same word. And he encourages the believers to be those who are overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing. So not the word excelling 
for the English translation, but overflowing. But it's the same word. In other words, you'll be someone that excels in gratitude when you're someone who abounds with gratitude, when you're someone who overflows with gratitude. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul uses the same word on two occasions within the same verse, and the CSB uses two different English translations for the same word. So he says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And it's the same Greek word. Now all of this is important, since we understand the heart of any word in the original language by its varied definitions, and within the context that we find that word, we know therefore that to excel in the Lord's work, as our verse says, is to abound in the Lord's work, and it's to overflow in the Lord's work. We can use all of these words to describe this original Greek word. And this doesn't mean, as I said already, doesn't mean that we'll always be successful in what we do as we undertake the Lord's work. What it does mean, it means that we will be consistent. We will be consistent. The work of the Lord will be a regular practice within our lives. It might be ministry. It might be amongst work colleagues, amongst friends, neighbours, amongst family, amongst colleagues of different kinds. Understand tonight, when Paul says the Lord's work, he wants us to hold on to this idea of overflowing, of excelling, of abounding. And understand tonight, when Paul says this, he's not speaking about your work for the Lord. <clears throat> We're not doing God a favour when we serve him. It's not our work for the Lord, it's the Lord's work. Paul is speaking of work that he has already called us to do and the power that he offers us for the glory of his name. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. So it's all of God. God provides us with the work, we do the work, and he gets all the glory. Have a look at what Vine says in his commentary in 1 Corinthians. He says this, The work of the Lord is to be distinguished from work for the Lord. The Lord's work is that which he gives us to do. Much may be done for him, by which we imagine to be service rendered to him, but which is not conformed to his will, and therefore not his work in reality. The motive may be sincere, and the activity constant, but we need to be sure that what is done is according to the scriptures of truth. For only that, for only that can be work given by him to be wrought. How easy it is for you and I to be busy. Uh, doing all of these different things and saying outwardly, I'm doing it for the Lord, I'm doing it for the Lord, I'm doing it for the Lord. But in reality, we're not keeping in step with the Spirit, we're not being led by the Spirit, we're not being empowered by the Spirit. <clears throat> we're not being rooted in God's Word as we seek to do all of these different things. And I don't know about you, but I think we would all deep down want to excel in the Lord's work. Deep down, that's an earnest desire that we have. Deep down, we all want to see fruit from our labour. We want to see spiritual fruit from the things that we do. And so this is why prayer is so important. Because prayer realigns our heart to God's heart. We're no longer doing our own thing, carrying our own agenda. When we pray, we're saying, okay, God, show us what to do. Give us clarity about all these different opportunities that we have. What should we say yes to? What should we say no to? No to. So we come to God, we ask for his grace we commit what we think we should do for him. We pray that he would take what is in our hands and he would use it for his glory. 
And let me say, none of that happens if we don't pray. None of it. We need to hold on to the fact that it is only God and God alone who can breathe life into our work. And when we open up our lives before him and we pray, then we have clarity about the way forward with regards to work of the Lord. The reality is, Denison Baptist Church is a busy church. We do a lot of activity day after day. But the reality is we are, without question, a lot less busy when it comes to prayer. A lot less busy. The challenge for you and I tonight is this. Why on earth would we ever think that we would see people connect and come to faith in the midst of all that we do if we do not commit it to prayer? Why would we think we can do what we are called to do if we don't first pray and dedicate what we do to God and trust that he will lead us and all of the different opportunities that we have. That doesn't mean it's always going to be easy for us if we do pray. In fact, in the next part of what Paul says here, <clears throat> Paul underlines the challenge that we face. He says, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And that word labour means toil. It means weariness. And we all know that experience from ministry. To excel, to abound, to overflow in the Lord's work does not exclude the fact that it will be difficult from time to time question is who are we relying on who are we depending on who are we hoping in as we think about all of that is our focus on Jesus do we recognise that labouring for him being weary for him is in fact evidence that we are walking in God's plan and purpose so as we close tonight I want you to see that everything that Paul speaks of here is in view of the resurrection. And how do we know that? Well, the very fact that he begins this verse with a therefore. He says therefore. And by the very fact that he says, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. The resurrection points us to the fact that despite how difficult it might get for us, despite how much opposition we might face, <clears throat> despite how tired we might feel, God will always have the last word over our lives. So he raising you from the dead means that he will right every single wrong. He will make everything that you have ever done for him all worthwhile. We're going to look back one day and have no regrets about this life because we have this glorious future. Everything that we have to look forward to will eclipse everything that's went past us. Let me encourage you tonight to assess your week. So think about your week. So tomorrow... Tomorrow is Monday, is that right? Monday. All the way through to next Sunday. So assess all of the different things that you're doing. Some of you might be organised, you've got a diary, you've got it all planned out. Maybe some of you don't have a diary, that's okay as well, there's grace. But you can work out all the different things that you're going to do. Let me invite you to ask yourself, how is it that you're able to do what it is you're doing with a bigger view of God's resurrection promise in mind? So think about all of these activities, many of them may be mundane, regular activities, things that you do. But look at all of these different things that you're doing, both big and small, in view of the resurrection. So it could be time with your family, it could be work, <clears throat> it could be ministry, it could be study, it could be coffee with a friend, it could even be having a difficult conversation with someone. When you understand all of these activities are worth it, because... God one day is going to make everything right. God one day has this promised reality and hope for you. 
that will give you a fresh vision and hope and energy for all the different things that you're going to do because you're looking ahead to the resurrection. It makes all of this, all of this stuff worthwhile day after day. So I invite you tonight uh, to do that, to look ahead, to plan out your week and to do so through the lens of the resurrection. Um, and we just want to create some space tonight for prayer as we do in the morning we do so in the evening and um, maybe you would like prayer uh, for for healing maybe there's a pain illness or ailment and uh, maybe you like prayer for a situation that you're facing or even wisdom uh, speak with someone here i know we're just a small group tonight but there's space for us to pray for each other uh, as we respond in worship it's time for tea and coffee but there's also time for prayer so uh, do make the most uh, of the time that God has given us tonight. And it may be a time of, of fellowship and friendship together. And as I said, look ahead to this week with joyful expectation of the resurrection. So let's pray together. So Father, we, we come before you and we thank you for tonight. We thank you that your resurrection promise is a gift. And we have something incredible to look forward to. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are steadfast, immovable and always excelling in your work knowing that our labor is not in vain help us to see that lord help us to live that and lord we pray that for the non-believers in our lives we would have opportunity to give reason for the hope that is in us that you would give us a, a heart's desire to do that you would give us the opportunity in our day to do that and you would give us the courage to do that and they might be transformed we commit our time to you we pray, Lord, for the men's event on Wednesday, for the ladies' gathering on Friday. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would abundantly bless these times. There would be a great time of encouragement and focus on you. Would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you equip us as we go into this week? In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.